everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We've got a great interview for you this week. I'm going to be talking with a guy named Todd Weaver. He's the CEO and founder of a company called Purism. And I met this guy at a conference here in Raleigh called All Things Open. And it's um, it's, it's interesting, actually. All Things Open is where I met uh, A-Press last year and came full circle this year. They had my book on display. And last year was the time when I met them in the first place, and that's how they became my publisher. So that was kind of fun. Um, but there's always some really interesting topics covered in this. It's about open source software and uh, always some really good talks. And this was no exception. I caught a presentation by Todd, and it was called The Future of Computing and Why You Should Care. And uh, it talked about how we got where we are, the state of things now, and where an ideal future would be. And it just rang so many bells for me. And I, I, I finally, when it was over, I had to approach him and say, hey, I would really love to get you on the show. And he very graciously agreed. I'm sure he's a very busy man. And uh, we got that together and put together a really interesting interview. And we're going to talk about lots of topics that I don't talk about actually that often because... So much of what we talk about in the show has to do with the way things are. Uh, and this interview and his topic was very much about the way things should be and the way things can be if we decide as consumers and as citizens that this is the way we want it. So it's a powerful argument. Uh, a lot of these things might seem ideal, but um, they're all possible. It's just a matter of us deciding that this is what we want and realizing that these things are possible. So we cover all sorts of ground. It's all very interesting. And then we get to talk a little bit about the products that they're creating, which are just amazing, really, when you realize what they are compared to what we have today. Uh, they started out making laptops, and these are all completely uh, open hardware and open software, meaning that you, not necessarily you as a layman, but certainly anybody with the skills uh, can open them up, look around, make sure that everything there is as it's supposed to be. And it's nothing more and nothing less than what they promised. There's no hidden stuff going on. They're not gathering data about you. They're not telling you about it because you can look at it and verify yourself. Uh, it's really interesting. And they're about to come out with a phone, a smartphone. So that, that is really interesting. And he said that the interest in that is just off the charts. So, uh, I tell you what, he tells it a lot better than I do. So let's get into it right now and let's talk to Todd Weaver. All right, we have a very special guest with us today. His name's Todd Weaver, and he's the CEO and founder of a company called Purism, which makes computers and will soon make phones uh, that are based on the principles of freedom, security, and privacy. Welcome to the show, Todd. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so I met you uh, recently at the All Things Open conference, where you gave a, a really eye-opening presentation on the future of computing and why we need to care about that. Uh, so you gave this speech to a bunch of nerds like myself, but today I'd like you to walk through some of those same topics that you covered, but, uh, from our layman audience, because I don't think that a lot of people are really aware of these things and where things stand and how we got where we are today. Um, and of course then I'd like you to, you know, kind of share your vision. You had a very interesting vision of the future and where you think we should be going with this stuff. And of course, how your company is leading the charge for that kind of thing. So, uh, you've got an interesting background. You started your presentation with six facts that you had you know told everybody to guess which ones were true which ones are false and one of them that really stuck out for me of course was the the whole thing about being sued so if you would just give me a little background on yourself and then you know tell me uh, cover that story in particular and then how did your comp how did this company purism come to be sure um yeah so i i basically uh somebody who cares about digital rights i'm a you know i've been in technology space for a long time i've also manufactured hardware um so anything from uh you know the hardware side of things to the software side of things and what that actually means from usability to what that means from a control standpoint, right? So this is uh, the control versus convenience uh, in the case of, I believe that we can have control and convenience, and then we can actually have a, a digital world that is respects people. Um, today, we're not in that, in that place. Uh, you know, big tech companies take complete control and exploit uh, people uh, because there are no rights. And so the topic that I ended up having the discussion about um, and sort of my history as to how I got there was uh, really around a central movement around uh, digital rights. And some, you call it digital civil rights. And this is basically saying that we as society and as individuals uh, are tired of big tech exploiting us. Mm. Uh, and my, my, the area that this kind of came around for me, uh, I've been in a digital rights activist, like understanding this issue for a very long time, but having two young daughters mm. and seeing where the future was going with regard to, uh, you know, 
devices being used more and more, uh, devices getting closer and closer to an individual and having all of their personal data on there, uh, and seeing my daughters as they're growing, uh, I knew that this was going to be a giant problem for them uh, and was something that I looked at, how can I solve? So as a, as a minor little anecdote, which kind of gives you a little history in, to me, um, was that I'm not afraid of challenging the status quo. Uh, I'm, I'm not afraid of saying that, hey, these are things that need to be fixed and it's going to take an awful lot of effort, but I'm willing to put in that effort. So as it related to my young daughters, that historically I have been fine with giving up my convenience so that I can retain my control. So this is, you know, not signing up for Facebook as an example, because I knew going into it that that was a a bad deal for me personally. Uh, And so these are things that, you know, I've been uh, advocating for, but, but it's much easier for me to just go through and say, oh, it's fine to give up that convenience. But with kids, as my, you know, my daughter's example is that I just saw, you know, peer pressure, seeing, you know, where things are going to go in the future and realizing that there's just actually not an alternative. Uh, there's no convenient yeah. alternative that respects people. And so I set out to establish a business model that could actually compete against big tech. And that business model is, you know, charge for the things that people are understand they're willing to pay for. Uh, and then, uh, and then actually, build them off of a value chain that society has. Uh, And then we can actually influence change for the better. Now, you did bring up the, uh, you know, of the six statements I made, the one that sort of was uh, uh, probably most shocking to uh, most people, which which is that I was sued. My my company and me personally uh, was sued. The company is called Ivy. It's called IVI. And I was sued by 34 of the big, uh, big media companies, over copyright infringement, even though I was actually paying royalties to the U.S. Copyright Office for streaming the, uh, um, I was the first online cable company. And so what I did is I took the same cable business model, but made it where you could download an application and watch cable television over uh, the internet Hmm. and pay the same royalties. But I knew that the entire business model there was, you know, we're going to be challenging big media. They, you know, they're going to see the internet as sort of like this piracy realm. And this was back in 2007. So, uh, it was our case set the legal precedence to why you don't get cable television over the internet <laughs> right now. <laughs> you, you get the various streaming channels and streaming services, but you don't get the same thing you get from cable. Uh, and, uh, and that was because we lost our case. But that was a significant uh, challenge to say, hey, this is kind of about you know empowering society into what they could get from content. So then I kind of dovetailed that same, you know, no holds barred approach to saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to actually put this to even better use around uh, digital rights. And that's why I started Purism as a social purpose company. Yes. Now social purpose company, I'd never heard of that until you brought it up in the thing. And I'd please explain to the audience what a social purpose company is. Sure. So, um, it's kind of, if you think about it simply, it's in between a for-profit C corp, which is what most companies are. Uh, and a not-for-profit. So a non-profit is on, say, one extreme, and the other extreme is a C-Corp. And so a social purpose company allows for you to be kind of in between, which means that I can form as a company, but I establish what my social purpose is in the world. And so Purism started as a social purpose company to say we are here to protect and respect and build products and services that respect people's digital rights. And so we enshrine in our articles of incorporation that says these are the things we care about. And what that does is it does an important systemic change is then we are advancing our social purpose above maximizing profit. So if any given point in time, our board of directors, our executives, the shareholders, anybody involved in the company understands that when we make a decision, it is first and foremost has to advance or align with our social purpose of protecting and respecting individuals' digital rights. The secondary piece is, okay, now that we have that in place, what's the, you know, how do we want to price things? What is it that we'd like to do from a sustainability of our business standpoint? Uh, 
And that systemic change highlighted and highlights the difference between what big tech is in the C-Corp world of always maximizing profit, which means in an unregulated digital world, which is where we live today, that big tech must exploit humanity for a dollar as opposed to protecting people because there's no regulation to stop them, and that's what their uh, incorporation status requires them to do. And as you brought up in, the, in, in your uh, lecture, um, your presentation, the, the Newman case that actually pretty much established that as legal fact that these C-Corps have a fiduciary responsibility to make as much money as possible. Yes, and so that case, it was, it was fascinating because most people are familiar with Craigslist. And this was Craigslist's founder, right, Craig, who <laughs> said, you know, hey, I want to, I like my site. It's cool. It's hip. You know, people enjoy it. And eBay, as a shareholder within Craigslist at this time, said, uh, wait a second, you can charge more and, you know, and, and you know, charge for these services that he wanted to give away for free as sort of this, uh, you know, uh, overall social benefit. And that court case uh, came to the conclusion of setting the legal precedent that established this systemic issue, which is if you are a C-Corp, you have one responsibility, maximize shareholder value. So if the shareholder wants to sue a board of directors or the executives, they can if they're not maximizing the values, the, the maximizing the shareholder value. So what that actually means in a regulated world, you know, a company's not going to go murder somebody because that's regulation, right? They're not going to abuse somebody in the physical world because that there's laws against that. In the digital world, there's barely any regulation whatsoever. And therefore, these C-Corps can enslave their users and their data and lock them in. And what that ends up doing is it makes it where those companies maximize their value against what society has as its values. So it's a, it's a very, very important legal precedent and put into perspective is why there's an erosion of trust of what big tech is doing, right, in society. Maybe someone can't exactly pinpoint the reason that they don't trust big tech, but they understand generally that there's, you know, questions going on. And what we try to do is pinpoint, help them understand why it is a problem. And another point you made, and when you're talking about the history and the and the and the present situation of where we are now, is that these companies, these very big now deep pocketed companies, of course, we're referring to things like Google, Facebook, Apple, um, Amazon, some of these you know household name companies that are just just massive. Is who gets to write the rules for these things? You talked about the the, the fact that there aren't a lot of digital regulations, and that's no coincidence, right? Yes, exactly. So this is where um, what I describe is that there's it's pretty simple, right? Government is here to really just write and enforce the rules that we as society would like to play. In the digital world, we don't really have any, right? In the physical world, we had centuries of legal precedent. Uh, and then providing the analogy, which I think helps people understand, is that in the physical world, if somebody walks up to your bedroom window and puts a camera on your uh, window from the outside and starts recording, and then they walk off property, you would immediately freak out and you would call the authorities, have somebody come over, they would uh, could potentially make arrests, uh, you know, a bunch of laws would be broken, trespassing laws, anti-paping Tom laws, uh, you know, uh, and then what would happen is, so in the physical world, there's a court case, right? Somebody could go to jail, and the authorities would, would file a case. So all of those things happen in the physical world. In the digital world, we don't have any of those rights. And so what happens is big tech can just exploit all of those things, meaning have your camera always record what your, your location, um, you know, recording your audio calls, recording all your communication channels, all of those things that you would normally in the physical world uh, have a court case opened about, or, you know, at least uh, call the authorities about. And 
these things just happen. And the reason is because we have no regulation. So what that actually means is we need to, as society, write the rules. And, and I'm not trying to write different rules that apply to the digital world. I'm mostly trying to say, let's have the physical world rules apply online. Hmm. And in that case, then we would have these no trespassing laws. Uh, we would have these rights to protect personal data um, and the rights to, you know, change providers. And so it, another analogy that I think may help uh, people kind of understand what I'm talking about is the issue with uh, owning versus renting. So when you hear about things, uh, let's say a, a phone, taking, you know, Android or iOS phone, which is pretty much what all the phones are, that people are actually just renting those devices. Uh, they, they don't own them. And so what happens is when you rent them, then you're asking, the, you have to ask the question of who controls the keys to the device you rent. Well, it's either Apple or Google or the ISPs that sell you the phone because they also have complete access to the phone. And so in that case, it's like you're renting a hotel room as opposed to owning a home. And in the digital world, we need people to have ownership, and there's no technological choices that actually give them ownership, which is what I'm trying to solve with tourism. But that, uh, that example of saying you know, you're renting a room in a hotel means that the warrants uh, go to the hotel operator to access a room as opposed to the individual who actually owns a home. And that is a, an extreme case, but it does highlight the fact that uh, people do not own their devices uh, in any way whatsoever, nor any of their data, uh, and it's a digital rights issue. So I do, you know, buy my phone. Like when I usually buy a phone, I actually buy it outright. But I think what you're talking about is more that the, you do have to, in order to use that phone, you need a service plan. And that's kind of where things, I'm assuming that's where, where, where some of this comes in you're talking about, where they still leverage because you have to be locked to their service and you have to pay for that service on an ongoing basis, that that's kind of where they get you. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes. So what I'm, I'm referring to is not the, you know, subsidized phone purchase. Uh, what I'm actually referring to is the hardware itself is um, the cell providers have complete access to all of the hardware on the phone based off of how the hardware is actually manufactured. That's part one. Part two is the operating system owners. This is either Apple uh, on the Apple phones or Android on all the other phones. Control the keys to the operating system. Mm. So, I mean, it, it phones home to those organizations mm -hmm. to get software updates. It also phones home to the internet service providers to get updates. And then it also is... Uh, there's no visibility, so you can't actually verify anything that's going on, which means you are renting the actual operating system and renting the device because you don't have control over them. So if you take the same analogy to saying it would be it's exactly the same as you walking into a, a hotel and renting a room for the night as opposed to owning your home that you can have complete visibility or look at and do repairs or, in your case, then, uh, you know, have the uh, property lines where you can say, no, this is my property and no trespassing. You don't get those rights if you rent a, a hotel. And so what we have is we have everybody who's participating in the Android or iOS world uh, are just renting a hotel room in their digital life. Gotcha. Yeah, I see where you're coming from now. Uh, so it really seems like the digital world, somehow they were able to like sneak this past us because these things are all kind of unseen. We don't, we don't really, you know, they're not tangible like the real world uh, examples you gave us, someone coming up to your window or whatever, these things. And, and, and couple that with somewhere along the way, no one wanted to pay for anything. <laughs> the internet was free. Uh, and so a lot of these companies, particular Google and Facebook and, and Twitter and some of these other companies decided that the the business model they would have to go if they're if they're quoting if they're giving away their services advertising, and for advertising to work or at least for that to be profitable or to be more profitable, uh, back to your first point about you know shareholder value, they have to mm -hmm. learn as much about you as absolutely possible. Do you have any? Other, is that really how did how do they sneak this by us? How, how did, in the digital world how do we not grok the fact the fact that 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 we were giving up all this freedom when we were signing up for all these services? 
Yeah, well, it's it's evolutionary. So right now, if the it's a different story than it was 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and five years ago. The so what happened was um, as these services started coming out, right? People just assumed that the worst case was, oh, they, yeah, they're getting some advertising information, which is fine. You know, people will think, oh, well, you know, targeted ads, what's the big deal, right? It's going to help. Um, and so it was, it was seen as like that, you know, not a big deal to give up these things. And so then there's just a handful of people who were saying, hey, actually, it's a big deal. Uh, you should really listen. But uh, the awareness just didn't, just wasn't there with uh, the zeitgeist, the average, you know, uh, participant in the online world. And so then it was also these free services that their friends are all in. And so they're like, Hey, everything should just be fine and dandy. And well, somebody should be watching out for, you know, bad actors in the space or exploitation or right. Cause someone's watching over our backs for helping us. But the answer is no, actually nobody is. There's <laughs> no regulation, no government oversight, no government rules. No, nobody was ever caring or what that actually meant from society. And as these exploits started coming out and the data manipulation, and then we get scientific data that backs these original theories that shows that it is manipulating people. And not only is it manipulating people, it's actually removing the rights that they would normally have in the physical world. Hmm. So it's complete and digital life enslavement. And so this is why I believe it to be a digital civil rights issue, is that in the physical world, we are now has, have so much of our life in the digital world that we need to have our physical rights apply. And in that case, then all of this exploitation and this quote-unquote oversight that would have been there in the beginning needs to now be introduced. And, a, and you know, a lot of these larger data leaks a big piece behind, you know, Facebook Cambridge Analytica was to highlight that, you know, this isn't just about an advertising, right? right? It's not just benign advertising or, or targeted advertising. It's actually wholesale gathering of everything about you and information you didn't even know yeah. is being gathered about you is being gathered about you. And then it's utilized to manipulate society uh, through providing you uh, information that you thought was, you know, uh, shared amongst society, and it's actually specifically tailored to modify your behavior. So there's no two people who get information in any curated platform that actually is getting the same information. So you can't have a sane debate about uh, any topic that's actually polarizing because the information you're receiving is custom tailored to you, which is, uh, and then I'm getting information that's custom tailored to me if I'm on a curated platform. So it creates this overall problem that is highlighted by Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, and now all of these other leaks mm -hmm. that have come, uh, come about. So this is why we sort of evolved to this point now where this is an erosion of trust, because we realized, hold on a second, it was a complete... <laughs> unregulated mess and we just you know we're signing up for free services because we didn't think we didn't know the consequences uh, society did not know the consequences of what they were actually signing up for and really at the end of the day it's about freedom and and it is about civil liberties and these things are being exploited by big tech every millisecond of every day on every device that everybody has so you uh, outlined five principles, uh, that uh, five digital civil rights. Uh, do you want to walk, walk us through those? Sure, yes. So what I actually did at the presentation, um, and it's something that we're actually advancing with regard to just building awareness uh, with people, building awareness with uh, regulators who can actually start to understand, like, what is it that they dislike about big tech, right? And we try to just pin it down to just, just five simple things. The first thing is the right to change providers. And it's, that's pretty simple, right? It basically says if you, you know, want to move your personal data from one provider, you can, rather than having vendor lock-in, which is a big piece, you know, mm. stickiness of user, big, you know, it's a big, a big thing about, uh, about what these big tech wants. So the right to change providers, pretty simple. And there's also legal precedent of that in the, in the U.S. where there was a time when you actually were locked into your phone number. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you wanted to change providers, you have to get a new phone number. Well, Congress said that is, that's kind of ridiculous. You should be able to change your <laughs> provider. And, and uh, the 
phone companies were up in arms saying that's going to be like a technical impossibility. And then it turns out it was actually really simple, of course. <laughs> uh, and so once, once the law is changed to say, no, you should be able to change your provider, well, that same philosophy and logic applies to your digital data. Right? So, uh, so that's number one. Number two is the right to protect personal data. So this is a, an important distinction here is that we believe you should have the control your master keys, mm-hmm. which means you can encrypt your data and have it be yours and yours alone. There's no master key by Apple or master key by Google because that's how it is today. Mm-hmm. Those companies control the master keys. So this is where we say you should be able to protect your own data with your own keys. That's an important important distinction. Then the third is the right to verify. This is an area that's actually really important, and it's going to be a growing area of concern. The right to verify is the ability to inspect that the code is operating in your best interest. So I'm going to give you an analogy that kind of makes sense. Uh, if your audience is U.S.-based, I'm going to give the example of USDA Organic. So this is a certification in the U.S. that uh, means a farm is using organic products, right? And there's a bunch of these types of certifications. But that's an example of that you, as a person who might want to purchase uh, organic foods in the U.S., you can just go to see this stamp that says USD Organic, and if you are subscribed to that, you can believe that, oh, it's, you know, it's been inspected. So this is the right to verify. This would be equivalent to... Uh, a regulator coming to a farm and saying, we'd like to inspect the soil. And then the farmer must let them come inspect the soil to say, yes, okay, it you know, hasn't been uh, you know, chemically treated for two years. Right? That's the regulation. In the digital world, we don't have any of that. Right? There's no such thing as visibility or verification of any claims whatsoever by any software that runs from big tech. So when somebody makes a claim, we just have to blindly trust that that's actually true. The right to verify means that uh, we can instill these rights that we have, and then we can have regulators or anybody can go inspect and verify that that's a true claim. That's an important piece to actually have a long-term support Mm. for uh, digital rights. Number four is the right not to be tracked. That's pretty self-explanatory, meaning the ability to opt out, uh, pull out your personal data, and delete your data. That's a very important uh, piece. And then the last uh, one thing that relates to that, of course, is that uh, a sane data retention policy, where if you go and ask for your data to be deleted, uh, that should be honored. Then the fifth point is the right to access, which means that you won't be discriminated against and you have the access to uh, everything. This is around net neutrality, right? So you have the access to uh, all data equally, uh, no matter who you are or uh, where you come from. Those are the, four, the five points of uh, what I consider digital civil rights and this overall digital rights movement behind uh, being able to respect people because big tech is not there to do it. And then the last point I'll make on that, which is that right now, big tech is lobbying all the time, governments, to have no regulation mm-hmm. or regulation that benefits them. And what we as society need to do is get involved in that conversation. And we need to begin to write the rules that are going to benefit society as opposed to just accepting that we think blindly that big tech is going to you know, respect us because they've proven time <laughs> and time again that is not the case. So I want to go back up to the the right to verify one because that's kind of a linchpin of this. And I know it's something that you guys in particular with your products are just fanatical about. So um, you frequently tout the benefits of open source software. Um, and I know that the Free Software Foundation is something you guys um, uh, look to for guidance and guidelines and, and, and for their – they've got standards that you're trying to, uh, to meet. Um, but with open source so- software, what's to keep somebody if, – if, if I can inspect my software – that, then that software is now available to anybody. What's to keep another company from just copying my software? How does how does that work in a marketplace? Well, there's a few things that are important to, to note. Um, in the free software world, it's actually about digital rights as opposed to just the source code being released. Um, and this, But if you're releasing the source code, the entire point is that uh, there's other ways to 
uh, monetize your products, right? So there's there's mm. things that people are um, willing to pay for. And there's other things that people are generally like, you know, questioning if they need to pay for them or not. Uh, and so at Purism, one of the things that we subscribe wholeheartedly to is releasing all of our source code under free software licenses, which means we respect the individual's freedom. And that doesn't mean we, you know, we're not making money, right? Because we charge for the things that people understand there's a cost behind, such as hardware, right? Everybody understands you got to pay for hardware. So we charge for hardware. Um, we can charge for support services. Uh, we can charge for things that, you know, a phone number with our upcoming phone, uh, because there's, those are things that people understand they have to pay for. Um, there's costs associated behind them. So the overall free software movement is actually more about freedom than it is anything to do with the actual source code. You need to have the visibility of the source code so you can actually run it and inspect it and verify it. But the last bit that's actually sort of the future, why it's so important to have the right to verify. I'm going to give you a voting machine example. <laughs> In the case of the voting machine, uh, if we have voting machines where it's a black box, which is most voting machines today, yeah. that you can't verify that the code in there is doing what it says. So, and this would be the same, to use this analogy of uh, organic farming, would be the same case if a regular regulator were to walk up to a farm and say, okay, I'd like to inspect your, your soil because I need to make sure that it has no chemicals uh, on it and we have to come back next year to confirm the same thing. And that would be equivalent to the farmer saying, no, 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 nope, nope, you don't need to access my soil, you just need to trust me. <laughs> The regulator in the physical world would say, "What? I mean, no chance. Right? Right. We need to verify it." Okay. In the digital world, we have, unless you use free software where you're releasing the source code, there's no way to verify. So, in a voting machine example, would be the the ultimate voting machine would be one in which the source code is all released, and then it's compiled. It's binary compared to another party who has compiled it. That's called reproducible builds. Mm-hmm. That's the, you, you can never do that with proprietary software. Right. But you can with free software where the source code is released. And so then you have where the machine itself can actually verify, cryptographically signed against a third party who has verified that it's valid. And then you can even have a simple green light on the top of the voting machine that says it's uh, no malware has been installed. It has not been modified not malicious, it matches everybody else, and then all the voting machines can end up matching. And what that example carries with it is uh, then people right, can understand, oh, that makes sense, right? That's, that's the right to verify, which means you can then, what your claims are, you can back up by verification. No big tech provides that now, and you just have to blindly trust their marketing. Uh, and that has proven time and time again to not be accurate, and people are starting to get up in arms. Yeah, that was a, actually that's a huge, uh, <laughs> big button issue for me. And it, anybody who's listened to the show long enough will know that uh, that election security is has been a, a pet peeve of mine. And we, I've actually talked to both last the last two presidents of VerifiedVoting.org uh, uh, on the show to talk about that, and that's a, that's a huge one. Uh, why that is not done is not mandated is beyond me, but. Um, yeah, that's right. And actually, I mean, so so purism, right? We we actually have in our business plan the ability to solve uh, voting machines. Um, it's, it's it's actually a very crystal clear technological uh, solution, uh, and we've actually been building up the security story with our existing product line that uh, that can showcase why that's actually a, an important thing. But in the end, what you have is you need verified hardware. You also need verified software that's for, that focuses on reproducible builds. So externally, like the Free Software Foundation, can build pure OS, and we can verify that the that the binaries that are produced are identical. So their hardware generates a reproducible build. Our hardware generates reproducible build. The hashes match. In that case, then you know now that you didn't have to go line by line to confirm the software. You just have a cryptographic hash that says, yep, it's the same. And so at that point, you can then roll that out to all the devices, and then you can have a TPM, Trusted Platform Module, that also can utilize our, like our Librem key, and you can actually have a hardware confirmed that everything matches and nothing has been tampered with. That's a, this is something Purism has advanced, right? This is our area that we own, yeah. which is 
the um, cryptographic guarantee that a device has not been tampered with. Yeah, actually. And so it's all. Uh, so it's only in our hardware, and what you end up with with that case is then you have uh, secured hardware, reproducibly built and verified software that runs, and then when somebody takes a, a vote, they of course get their printout, paper copy is mm-hmm. important, and then you can actually also update the voting data into a public blockchain, which is the rare instance of me actually recommending blockchain. <laughs> uh, um, it, it's very helpful when you need a public ledger. All other yes. cases, you just use a database. But um, in the case of a public ledger here that's cryptographically backed, also means that you can then confirm. The other aspect that's really beneficial about that is then you can see, uh, you know, let's say a news organization can just tap into that public information about what votes have actually been cast, and then you can go at home, take your paper copy, confirm that your vote actually made it through the entire cycle, right, from your vote cast to vote counted. That's really interesting. I, I can't believe that didn't that that thought did not strike me as you were describing your hardware. That that would that's perfect. And we'll actually we're gonna get yes, we're right. gonna get to the hardware for sure. Um, before we do, I want to I want to get your take on a couple of recent news stories. Um, uh, first yeah. of all, uh, Tim Cook's privacy speech. He gave a uh, there was a European big European Commission uh, keynote that he gave, and he echoed a lot of the same sentiments that you actually had. And I saw there was a blog article that your uh, C- C- CISO wrote. Um, kind of mm-hmm. debating all but one point, and, and it was came down to your key, po- uh, the point about who keeps the keys. But yes, talk about that. And what? How do you feel about? I don't know if you saw. I don't know if you saw his presentation or not. Um, Apple. If I had to bet on one company out there that was that was closer to the ideal than the rest, it would be Apple. It's because they're not. They're not. Their general business model is not making money off your data. Generally, uh, they make money on the mm-hmm. hardware. But so, what is your take? Maybe on Tim Cook's speech, and, and do you? Obviously, you're going to say Purism is the company that want that, that you want to go to for this stuff. But is Apple anywhere near close? Or, uh, what do you feel about that? Yeah, well, it's actually pretty simple. So, you know, in the in the big tech world, right? Uh, Apple knows, and this, it's all going to come down to marketing. So, all big tech is going to challenge. But every time we come out with something, or anytime anybody who cares about digital rights comes out with something, big tech is going to market their way out of the problem, <laughs> not actually solve it. Okay. So, and Apple's no exception. So, what happens is. Google will come out and say, you know, we can say, they can say, we're secure, we're secure, we're secure, we use encryption, we're secure, Chromebooks have this separate little, you know, uh, screw that keeps things secure or whatever, right? Uh, And that's what they're going to constantly tout, security, encryption, everything else, because they mine all your data. And so Apple's story is going to be the opposite of that, which is, hey, we, uh, you know, don't mine your data, so we're the company you should come to, we respect your privacy. But at the end of the day, they're all missing the systemic issue, which is freedoms, Mm. the digital rights behind people. And so Google's case, yeah, they exploit people and they use encryption to remove competition from getting that information. (laughs) Right. Apple, on the other hand, uh, does not primarily make their money off of data. Now, certainly they do gather up data, so don't, don't be fooled about that, but they don't uh, that's not their primary source of revenue. And so what they do, of course, is they can point the finger at the big tech that do gather it and say, we don't do that. We don't gather all that data. But, of course, we control the keys. Apple controls the keys to uh, all the devices, which means they have, they're exploiting people by actually locking them in to something that they're renting the operating system mm. and renting the service uh, rather than actually allowing somebody else to control the keys. So... The root of it all is just simply respecting people and having understanding that you need to respect their freedoms, which includes the ability for running their own operating system, choosing their own provider, choosing not to be tracked, right? The ability to actually verify that these claims are true, which you cannot do on any Apple device, right? You cannot verify the claims. So it's, again, big tech is going to market heavy. They will say, we protect your privacy, which they don't. They'll say, we're secure, which they're not because you have to control the keys for proper security. And so that same story is going to continue to play out. Uh, and that's the biggest challenge. I, I already know. The biggest challenge that Purism is going to face is the marketing spend from big mm-hmm. tech, not the actual values that they carry. So the, the other story I wanted to get your take on, and I think this is very relevant to your products and this will be a great segue into in your into your products and how you build and uh, manufacture and design your products of course is the super micro story <laughs> so 
the big the big uh, Bloomberg article, which still has not been verified to the state, which I don't get, because if there's really thousands of these things out there, you'd think that someone would be able to produce one. But of course, just to refresh the audience's memory, Bloomberg came out a few weeks back and said that there's a company called Supermicro who who builds some motherboards that are used in a lot of different computers. Uh, and of course, like any major product like that, like cars and other things, there's lots of parts and pieces that go into that. And many of that is farmed out. And somewhere along the line, a, a rogue company backed by China has introduced these little teeny tiny little chips on the motherboard that could compromise the whole system. And they said that Apple and Amazon and others were, were affected by this. And of course, these companies came out and vehemently denied this. Uh, and I, it really hasn't been settled as far as I'm concerned of the news, but what is your take on that and supply chain attacks? And then let's kind of roll that into how you guys build and manufacture your products and, and how you deal with supply chain attacks. So um, supply chain attacks, it is it, not just this singular case, right? Um, so even if someone wants to go and refute against this case, which obviously the Apple and Amazon and a few others are, uh, Supply chain attacks happen, right? So this, it's not a theory, right? These things right. certainly do occur. And um, and they can occur from individually selected, right? We're going to go target one person who's receiving information or one company who's receiving information to wholesale uh, modification of uh, hardware. And so these are um, – so let me just sort of back up and frame things uh, in a way that I think other people can understand mm-hmm. is that in the game of – digital rights, which is a game of freedom, and which is a game of security, right, to protect you and your uh, individual rights. That is actually, you think of it like uh, layers in a cake. And so at the top layer, right, you know, it's like the browser, right, and things you, you know, use your browser for. And below that then is the operating system, and then below that is the kernel, and below that's the bootloader, and below that is the, right, the hardware selection CPU, so that's a motherboard used, right? And then you can get all the way down to saying, well, now it's actually the PCB fabrication, which is supply chain. And then it's also schematics, right? Mm-hmm. So say, you know, something actually been modified at the uh, schematic level. All of those are under attack. So when, and it just depends on, you know, which form of attack, but they're all under attack and they are all uh, being manipulated to benefit a, a country or a group or a government um, or competition. And so what happens is in each of those, as you think of it, the security layer, right, the deeper you go, you actually have access to everything above it. So mm-hmm. I'm going to give you an analogy. If you came to be and you said, Todd, I'd like to, uh, you know, hack into WhatsApp's encryption. They say, okay, simple. Just go a layer lower. <laughs> you have access to everything mm. above it. So modify, you know, break into Android, and you have access to everything above it. So therefore, you don't have any encryption if you have access to the layer below it. That's why hardware is the ultimate hack, because you have access to everything above it. Mm. So what? Um, so uh, what we do? We release the schematics for like this is our in related in relation to our upcoming phone. Our mm-hmm. phone is not going to be Android. It's not going to be iOS. It's going to run our own operating system, which is a GNU operating system that runs a Linux kernel. All of the source code is released, so it's freely available, free to inspect, free to re- reproducible build. So we claim this right to verify is there. Mm-hmm. This on the hardware side. We also release the schematics, which means that then you can verify the hardware actually is what it claims to be, right? So you can run a trace to say from point A to point B is supposed to, you know, pr- create this result according to schematics, and you can actually physically test it on the on the phone. And so that gives you a physical right to verify. The other aspect that's actually really important is Curism is a is a very unique company in the fact that we have schematic designers, we have hardware designers, we have kernel developers, we have operating system developers, we have application developers, and we have designers, right? So we go, the entire gamut is covered under one roof. Mm. That's actually not the case, even for big tech companies, 
right? Most of those things are outsourced. And the reason we do that is because of the security issues around supply chain, right? So we can manufacture our phone anywhere. And as a matter of fact, our phone is very likely to be manufactured in the USA. Hmm. Uh, and the reason is because uh, we can, you know, we're talking about machine versus machine nowadays. It's actually not labor. So China labor, where we could manufacture, or German labor, or U.S. labor, it's actually not about the uh, labor costs of an individual. Right? We're not talking about hiring tens of thousands of people to solder. Right? We're talking about machine versus machine. Hmm. So in that case, by controlling the full stack, schematic, hardware design, industrial design, mechanical design, all the way up through operating system and everything else, we have control over the entire supply chain, which means that then we can fabricate anywhere that we choose to fabricate. So then we can fabricate in the U.S. for roughly the same cost as fabricating in uh, China, or we can fabricate in Germany, right? Uh, we can fabricate in India, right? So it just depends on what what we'd like to do. And that also comes into play for certain um, certain sales opportunities, right? To be able to fabricate in India for phones that uh, you know India wants, as opposed to importing. Hmm. So there's a lot of a lot of options around that, but the biggest piece is uh, is supply chain management. So you've uh, current your current products are laptops, um, and I've seen them. They're, they look gorgeous, and the, uh, check the prices; they're actually they're quite reasonable. I expected. You know, to get all this custom custom stuff for you, you know, that the the costs were somehow going to be you know astronomical or way you know way higher than the average laptop, but they're really not. Um, and there's some other interesting points that 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 I saw when I looked up looked into your products that were like, for instance, uh, you have a hardware switch to disable the camera, the microphone, and the wireless chips, which for if you're really going to get uptight about security, you have to have that. Explain explain that. Yeah, so in the case of um, being able to turn off your webcam in the sense of security, uh, it can be as easy as a light switch, which is what we have, right? So you physically toggle the switch, it actually severs the electrical circuit so that it doesn't have power to that peripheral. Uh, and so there is no way to hack that unless you physically have access and you physically make that switch. <laughs> um, so the ability for software to remotely update or you know turn that on at some point is a very strong security story, and it kind of highlights all the remaining other you know other topics we bring up. Right, is, is saying that we want to actually physically sever these things from a security standpoint, and so you also bring up you know price and and you know that's an area that we are competitive to high end. Right, I mean our our laptops are anodized black aluminum, uh, you know uh, current technology mm -hmm. so we you know we're, we're at the leading edge of, of uh, the hardware side of things and we're also at the uh, leading edge of the software and what actually runs on the device are always designed to respect uh, individuals so it's not you know so security is a, a big area that is rooted in freedoms right? you can't actually have security unless you can actually verify those claims and there's a lot of groups that try to do security without verification uh, and those don't um, you know, those don't really succeed as well as uh, as one that is rooted in freedom. Uh, so an, an example of that case is, is like what we're doing with our our phone is uh, we actually have to manufacture the hardware because all the hardware manufacturing that's done combines everything together and it's all, and anybody who's trying to do anything phone has to use Android. And we said, well, we can't because that's a security and, pri and privacy and freedom nightmare. So we have to start from scratch. Uh, so it's a you know it's a giant undertaking, but again it's an important piece that that I care about and and is, I'm I'm willing to you know go through the trenches to make sure that that uh, you know is resolved. Well, now, I want to get to that because I've got questions about the phone too. But like back on the uh, on the switch thing, so there's a there's the classic picture of Mark Zuckerberg, uh, who in the background is his laptop's got a sticky over over his over his camera because he knows as we do. And a lot of other people probably don't. Is that you can turn on the you, if if you don't have a physical hardware switch that actually electrically disconnects that camera, you can and it's been done. Turn those cameras on even without turning on the little indicator light saying it's on, and and then pulling video off that. There's there's a tool you can go on the web right now called Shodan that will go out and find you, you know, vulnerable 
webcams um, the, the, like this. So anyway, so it's it, it's a crucial piece that yes. you've got that 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 piece. The other thing I want to bring up. Right, that, that, go ahead. Oh, well, it does add, uh, you know, we also not just sever the camera, we also sever the microphone. Right. So putting a sticker over your camera does solve one piece of it, which is to say, you know, the if somebody were to enable it, they would be recording the back of a sticker. Right. Um, but the, but their, your microphone is still able to be recorded. So we actually combine those two. We actually have it as a single switch that you turn off the camera and microphone together. And, and by having it be a light switch, in you know in how it functions, it's very very easy for people to realize. Oh, great! I just flip the switch, and then you're completely protected. And there's no software that can uh, hack around that. Right. And uh, the other thing that you guys have is is that, that a lot of people probably don't realize is is uh, different. Is you actually have screws on the back of your laptop that a, a regular human can take out because <laughs> because Apple and a lot of these other companies that make these hermetically sealed things that they do not want you getting inside have these all sorts of funky security screws. Yes. So it, it, this is an area that um, it, with the right to repair, right, from EFF and a few other things. So this is actually really an important area where uh, the commoditization of products to where society now thinks that these devices just have to be thrown out. <laughs> and, you know, uh, so your battery dies, well, got to throw it out and got to get a new one. Uh, your, um, you know, software is starting to get slow because of software updates from the, you know, big tech companies who are purposefully making that slow so you purchase the next device. I mean, it's not necessarily a completely malicious intent, right? They're actually trying to improve the software, but they, but they basically just ignore the past products. And so you have no option to repair them. Uh, you can't open it up and just get a new battery. Uh, and right. so you throw it out, you get an upgrade, and uh, and that is how uh, you know these big tech continues to get bigger. So for us, yes, we have actual Phillips screws that you can <laughs> remove, and it also doesn't void the warranty mm. if you want to uh, put in a new hard drive or put in new memory. And so we have two drive slots. We have a memory slot that allows you to replace it. We also have a battery that you can replace by just simply... Uh, two additional screws, remove the battery, and one cable. So it's, you know, the ability for battery replacement, modifying things to their needs, upgrading, right? These are things that, uh, well, not everybody's going to do, but just having that as an option certainly does uh, adhere back to these rights that you own the device, and you should then in turn be able to modify or repair it. Well, and concept. that's something that we, we believe, and this is, again, where in big tech, could care less, right? There's no rules or regulations that stop them from doing it. So why not make something that's completely commoditized and you have to just throw out and get another one? Um, and this is where it's really important that we fight for those rights because then products would be produced where a battery can be replaced. Yeah. And uh, and so then you can end up recycling them, right? Uh, if you don't want to keep it or upgrade your own battery, at least you could re you know provide it to somebody who needs one. Right now, you can't. You just, you know, basically gets thrown in the trash heap. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, so tell me about tell me about your phone. This sounds really exciting. I think it's coming. I think it's April. Uh, you're shooting for April next year for when it's coming out. Uh, how is it going to work? Because it seems like the phones, in particular, and we talked about this earlier, are so tied to carriers um, and the chips involved uh, are all locked down. How did you get around that? And will will this phone actually be a cellular phone, or will it be an over the top digital only uh, device? How's this going to work? Yeah, so it is a, a phone and all in the smartphone definition. Uh, and yes, you can go into the majority of carriers and get a SIM card, put it in the Librem 5 phone, and be able to make a phone call, send SMS messages, and you know, open up a web browser and you know use the phone as you would normally do for the core things that you would expect from a smartphone. Uh, so a couple of key differences is we could not use any of the CPUs or cellular baseband, as it's called, uh, for the carriers because uh, that's a security nightmare. Those mm -hmm. carriers have complete access to the device, the, and we needed to write our own operating system because we can't use Android nor iOS uh, because it just is the rights exploiting uh, <laughs> problem. So what we actually had to do is we had to start with, we needed to separate out, isolate, the cell carrier from the main CPU and memory. 
That means that then you are in control of the device, not the internet service provider, which means what they provide is what you expect them to provide, right? What you expect a provider, an internet service provider is to hey, give me a phone number, allow me to make phone calls and allow me to get online. Well, that's what we limit them to. That's what they do. The things you expect is the thing we limit them to. The things that they do that you don't expect are uh, constant tracking of everything and everywhere you've ever been, complete access to the entire operating system, which means all of your photos and GPS location of everywhere that device has ever been. Um, and all of those things is, is the other things that you don't expect them to do, and they do. So that is uh, an important piece of why we had to fabricate the hardware. So the expectation of what we're planning to deliver is a smartphone that has core functionality, which is really around communication, web browsing, email, etc. And then we're, we have created a platform that allows for additional applications, which we started to see an awful lot of momentum around application development. So this is a phone that is not Android or not iOS that allows you to communicate to your friends and family in a protected manner. And, uh, and then also has a growing number of applications because there's so much interest behind uh, what it is that we're doing. So have you gotten buy-in from the major U.S. carriers on this? Are you, are you ready to be selling these things? Uh, maybe not through their store, but how, how does one get service to one of these things with your phone? Normally, you would walk into the AT&T store or the Verizon store, and you'd buy your phone there. Or in the case of Apple, you would go into an Apple store, and you could buy one from there. Um, how's mm-hmm. it going to work? And like, do you have any idea what the costs are going to be? Is there like uh, not only for the device itself, but for uh, monthly service? So uh, in the beginning, you mentioned that you buy your phone outright, and then you go get service, right? So you walk in mm-hmm. and say, I'd like service, and they give you a SIM card, and you put the SIM card in, right? Uh, that is the exact story that we're talking about. So you purchase the phone from us, and then you would walk into most carriers. Now, this is another sort of right to change providers issue with some U.S. carriers, uh, that you they actually require you to purchase a phone from them. Mm. So those carriers are blacklisted, right? We, it will not work with our mm. phone. But that's uh, um, um, very, very few. The majority allow you to just, you know, be able to get a SIM card and use it on uh, on their network. And so that's what the the user flow would be. Purchase a phone from us, walk in, grab it, get a SIM card from your provider, and you pay them the monthly service fee for the phone number and data and uh, and other services you'd like. And then you plug that in the phone and you can start using hmm. your text messaging and phone call, et cetera. And so all of that just will work for those for those core communication pieces. All right. Well, I've got one more question for you. I always like to end with um, a call to action and, and, and tell people how they can get more involved. And first of all, I absolutely want to recommend the audience, just go to Purism and, and look at the products. These are they're really gorgeous products. Um and they're quite they're quite reasonably priced, certainly for for what you're getting. Um, so definitely, like people go check that out. And and what I like to and I often say in this program is, it's it's important to support companies like Purism, even if you're not, you know, even if maybe you're on the fence about what you're going to do or whatever. Because you know, showing that there is that the people are willing to pay for security, for for privacy, for pre- freedom. Is crucial. Um, it, it's the chicken and egg thing. So, we're, but you know, so I encourage people often to go out and to make a statement and to, to 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 buy some of these products and services because it's important that we establish the market for these things. Um, but what what else might you recommend people do other than a protest vote against <laughs> Apple and Google by going buy your phone? How else can people get involved? Obviously, you know, contact your Congress and that sort of thing. Is there any other kind of recommendations for how we can write our own rules, as you say, um, how we can make sure that our voices are heard over the the, the, the corporations? Yeah, well, uh, I think you know, what you're highlighting specifically around you know voting with your wallet is actually the area that Pearson has seen the largest growth with. So I'm going to first highlight that bit before I move on to the other pieces. So why that's important uh, is because we manufacture hardware. We utilize that margin from the hardware to advance all of these other causes, mm. right? So software freedom, uh, services, uh, education uh, about what these issues are. And so it's, uh, and then the other piece is that's the most important bit is that it's removing that funding from big tech that we all <laughs> 
disagree with, right? So th- there used to be, uh, you know, sort of a like, okay, buy whatever hardware you want and then run ethical software. Well, that is, has, is, you know, been the challenge more and more with hardware. But then the other piece is that always has funded the hardware makers mm. who actually don't have the aligned beliefs that we have. So it's actually a, it's a benefit in, you know, voting with your wallet, but it's also to say, you know, to those who are exploiting us in the digital world that uh, we don't want to be funding that any longer. Right? Mm. We've been funding that for a long time. We don't want to be doing that any longer. So then the other uh, piece that kind of relates um, to that is that um, if you recall, uh, you know, the days of like AOL, right? So AOL then when people would like email you from AOL and, and the, the sort of, let's say, zeitgeist, the overall boom was like, well, AOL is kind of dorky, right? And, <laughs> plus, you know, and, and you're actually, I mean, you, you understand, you're like in a walled garden, right? Why don't mm-hmm. you come enjoy the internet as it was designed to be, right? This overall utopia. Well, what happened now, <laughs> when somebody sends me something from Gmail or sends me something from, uh, you know, any of these proprietary servers like iCloud or iMac, right? I, I look at them as the same way as saying, hey, you're just like, hey, oh, you are part of this overall wall garden. You're, you're fueling the problem, mm-hmm. right? So this is where it's actually super cool to not be on those things. And this <laughs> is something that I think that people are starting to realize, right? Is that like, oh, I, you know, I'm going to get off Facebook. I'm going to... Yeah. yeah, and those who realize that Instagram is not the not the better choice, but it's the exact same <laughs> choice. So that you know, starting to look at like what are the alternatives? Now, those alternatives are starting to grow, and what we need to do is recognize the areas that are really uh, helpful and the areas that are not yet there um, that we still support because they will get there with the support. So it's it's an overall awareness of saying, you know what, I'm not going to stand up for my uh, I'm not going to have my rights be trampled by the big tech any longer. I'm going to stand up for my rights. And what does that mean? Is I'm going to seek out and advance the things that are going to help digital society. Yeah. And so it's not so. So really, it's about you know yes, uh, backing the things that are advancing the, what you believe in. The second thing is making other people aware that this is an important issue. And that can be simply by, you know, recommending when you, when you learn that there is something to use, you recommend that. Yeah. And the last bit is, of course, making sure that when there is regulation coming up, you confirm of who is it backed by. Is it backed by big tech wants Well, it's probably not going to be helpful for you yeah. Yeah. because they clearly want to continue to advance the exploitation of humanity. So you look at is it backed by, uh, you know, watchdog groups or groups that you, you know, have aligned police and then you should get involved in, in trying to write those rules or advance those rules or vote for those rules because the regulation is going to either stay completely deregulated where you get exploited or the regulation is going to be written by big tech, which means you're going to be exploited either way. So we have to change that. Well, Todd, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've learned so much uh, from your presentation and, and today in this interview, and I hopefully that a lot of the folks out there are, are now aware that they have this choice um, because I think a lot of people feel that there is no choice, and that's not true. And thanks to companies like you, there are alternatives, and I appreciate that. And thanks for coming on again. I uh, really enjoyed this. I, I probably only covered half my questions, so maybe maybe sometime we'll do it again and we'll get a, just a deeper dive on some of these other issues. Oh, for sure. And yeah, I'm more than happy to talk through it at any point. And thanks for having me on. Big thanks again to Todd Weaver for coming on the show and doing this wonderful interview. I just found that absolutely fascinating. And uh, the topics, not not just the products that they're producing, but the, the thought behind them and the whole purpose of their company, social purpose company. I didn't even know that existed. It's uh, so, so cool. And we could definitely use some more of that in uh, in today's world. Um, and you know, it's just inspiring to me to know that there are companies and people like this that are out there doing these things and it gives me hope. So check out the products for sure. Uh, even if you're not in the market, uh, go check them out just to see what it's all about. It's very interesting and realize that, you know, when you invest in things like these, and these, these are investments, they're not just things, you're not just buying products. You're also investing in this company, basically by buying their products uh, and telling your friends about them that. You're saying, this is the kind of stuff we want. This is going in the right direction. This is what I want to support. And as Todd was saying, it's it's also, in effect, saying that I don't want to support the way things are now. 
So it's voting with your wallet. Um, and that, that, has, that could be, well, it's a very powerful thing. So uh, I encourage you at least to check it out and, and see if maybe some of these things might be for you or somebody you might know. Uh, if nothing else, just be familiar and know that these kind of things are out there. And if you can demand these sorts of features uh, from the products you do buy and from the politicians you elect to write the regulations around these products. Because right now, there's not a lot of rules uh, in this game. And the rules that are there are, are heavily in favor of, well, not in favor of you. And one more thing before we go, I'll make a call one more time. If you would, if you've gotten the book, uh, I'd love for you to go out to Amazon and write a really nice review out there. It doesn't have to be long, um, but I would very much appreciate it. It's really hard to get reviews for some reason. So uh, I would very much appreciate it if you like the book to go out there and, uh, and leave a review on Amazon. Same thing with the podcast. I would love to have some podcast reviews. I don't have a lot of them right now because I've never asked for them really. Uh, but I'd like to get some of those too. So iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast from, go, go on the web, uh, find those things and, and, and leave a review there too. I would very much appreciate that. Uh, and of course you could also spread the word as well. Just, you know, let your friends and family know if you like these things too, maybe we can get some more listeners and some more people, uh, to adopt some of these very basic things that'll keep all of us safer. So, uh, help me out in this campaign I'm on my mission to make us all safer. And uh, that's going to wrap it up, and I will talk to you again next week, as always. Until then, stay safe, and don't get caught with your droppers down.